These last two turbulent years have brought into sharp relief the dynamic tension between a court's duty to keep both employees and the public safe and the duty to respect the privacy and the personal choices of those very same employees and the public. We're talking about this topic at a time when many of us thought, or at least hoped, that these kinds of discussions were behind us. We could move on. And yet, as of December 2021, when this conversation is being recorded, the recent appearance of yet another COVID variant has raised a new round of concerns. Three examples come to mind that we can use as discussion points. Points where work has become increasingly intrusive, yet employees and the public are at risk. As court offices reopen, some employees have refused to disclose their vaccine status. This can put those very same employees, as well as others, at a higher risk of contracting COVID. As more courthouses open up again for staff and the general public, some members of the public refuse to disclose their vaccine status and refuse to wear a mask. Security at the front door has occasionally refused them entry. They are therefore being denied access to justice. Courthouses as public buildings need to be accessible to the general public. However, there have been instances of employees being attacked by individuals. I'm thinking specifically of an incident where a homeless person attacked an employee inside the courthouse in King County, Washington. I'm Pete Kiefer and welcome to A Question of Ethics, a video conversation on the ethical issues confronting courts today. I'm chatting today with a panel of court administrators from around the country on ethics, privacy, and the safety of employees and the public. Canon 1.1 states that a court professional faithfully carries out all appropriately assigned duties. Is not the safety of court employees and the public a fundamental duty? What could be more basic than ensuring the health and well-being of the staff and public that comes to the courthouse every day? Canon 1.3 states that a court professional must make the court accessible. Presumably, the courthouse must be accessible to the public and its employees. Can court security limit public access by demanding to know if an individual has legitimate business in the courthouse? Canon 2.7 states that a court professional respects the personal lives of litigants, the public, and employees. How intrusive can security personnel get in demanding to know about the medical background and business of the public and employees? I'm joined today by Courtney Whiteside, court administrator for the Municipal Court in St. Louis, Missouri. Supervisors in Courtney's court are back in the office, but staff rotate between home and their work site. Employees must attest to being vaccinated, except for medical and religious exemptions. Those not vaccinated must test every seven days. The county requires masks. People are not allowed entrance into the courthouse if they have a temperature, but most locations do not take temperatures. Barbara Marcille, trial court administrator for the 4th Judicial District in Portland, Oregon. About two-thirds of employees in Barbara's court come to the office. She expects nearly all will be on site by January. The Chief Justice has required all staff and judges to be vaccinated, except for medical and religious exemptions. Those not vaccinated must test twice a week. Masks are required when one is not in a private office. To avoid large groups of potential jurors, Barbara's court went to remote jury selection. The court will return to in-person voir dire in January. The public is rarely refused entrance into the courthouse, only in extreme circumstances. And Carl Tonis, 
trial court administrator for the Second Judicial Circuit Court in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Carl's court never closed. Around the middle of 2020, about a quarter of staff worked remotely. Now almost all employees are back in the office. The court has no mask or vaccination requirements other than any employee or member of the public who tests positive for COVID should not come to the courthouse. They do not take temperatures. Thank you all for joining today's conversation. As we're looking to see if there is tension between safety and privacy, let me start off by asking, what do you think is the court's responsibility to keep employees, the public, and court operations safe? Safe from COVID and safe from attacks inside the courthouse. Barbara Marcille? A lot of responsibility. It's something that is definitely a new aspect of a court administrator's job, I believe. I think as an employer, we have a lot of responsibility to make sure our employees are not unsafe in performing their job or in getting to their job and um, at any greater risk. So I think that you know we've really had to take into consideration the concerns of employees about the circumstances you know and the environment that they're working in. Um, and we had early on you know a lot of employees who were concerned about coming to work and having interactions with the public. But at the same time, we have a responsibility for access to justice. And as you said, that is a, a canon of responsibility for court management and a, a right of the public. So people are often coming to the courthouse for reasons that aren't voluntary. So while so many businesses at the early stages of the pandemic shut down and closed doors, we didn't have that option. There are matters of great personal importance to people, whether it could be protective orders or child custody modifications or financial matters that you know they see as urgent. We couldn't prevent them from having an opportunity to resolve those issues. So we had to figure out how to do that in a safe way. Um, and then there are also you know, a lot of legal requirements that we are bound by, whether it's statutes or uh, orders of a chief judge or presiding judge. So we really do have to balance a lot of aspects of, of safety you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. Courtney Whiteside? Well, I think Barb said it really well. It's kind of a, a, not necessarily a new task of a court manager to ensure safety, but it's certainly a new twist on what that means. And that's been a huge challenge for us. Uh, and when it comes to the public, I, I, you know, I tend to lean towards allowing the public to make their own decisions on whether to attend court or not. We still offer virtual hearings. Uh, when it comes to the employees of the court, the St. Louis County a county executive has ordered masking and a vaccination policy. So that is required. They do have to disclose their vaccine, the vaccination status. So we just abide by, we abide by those, those directives and orders that have been put down by our county executive. And if, you know, somebody decides to come to court, uh, they are required to wear a mask, but they do have the option to request a virtual hearing if they so chose. So it's definitely our responsibility. It's just a new kind of a new twist on what that what that means. Carl Tonis. Oh, I think all court professionals would almost immediately acknowledge that we've got a professional responsibility and a public obligation and ethical duty to pay attention to public safety and safety for our employees. You know, for years we've been concentrating mostly on physical safety, physical security, security screenings at the doors, that that sort of thing parties who may be physical threats or threats to each other or threats to court personnel from time to time. But of course, the pandemic introduced a whole new dimension of what we mean by safety. 
And I think one of the key distinctions here is, or what makes our, our responsibility all that more profound is something that our presiding judge here pointed out early on in, in formulating our responses and our cautions. Unlike retail outlets, unlike restaurants, we compel people to come here. Uh, they, so many of the parties who walk through our doors have no choice. And so we've got a responsibility to keep them safe, given that we compel so many of them to be here. We have a responsibility to maintain access in the face of all those safety challenges. And I, I think we also have a profound responsibility in maintaining safety when you keep in mind that so much of our constitutional obligation can't be shut down. We, we can't tell domestic violence victims to come back later for that protection order. We can't tell uh, social services to file that child protection case some other time where we're giving safety a priority at the moment. Those are just not options. And so I think all those obligations and all those public responsibilities make that challenge or the, all the more difficult. But then we're the court and we strike balance all the time. You know, our icon, our one of our persistent symbols is that scale of justice. And so we, we strike balances all the time and, and I'm confident we can do it here too. What should be the consequences if and when a court fails to keep employees in the public safe? For example, if an employee in the office comes down with COVID and ends up in the ICU. Barbara? I would say I, I think about this a lot. Um, I worry a lot more about the natural consequences than you know, penalties for some sort of a failure to keep people safe. The natural consequences, of course, are people getting seriously ill and you know, potentially dying due to COVID or you know, of failing to have access to justice are the consequences that those people would experience in their lives that could be very negative. So I think that we really have to keep those, what the repercussions are in the forefront of our minds. But I guess for me, I've really thought of the consequences for failing to keep people safe as a, a real communication issue, basically, in terms of, um, I think, the the natural consequence of failing to, you know, implement COVID precautions would be people coming down with COVID and having outbreaks in our workplace. And we've had, I want to say close to 200 now situations where we've had individuals who have reported that they were infected with COVID, whether they're employees, judges, lawyers, members of the public who've been on site in our various courthouses. We've yet to have any of those result in an outbreak where other people were then infected from exposure to that person. And so that's been my real priority. And the communication aspect is just making sure the protocols are really well understood, documented, all of our partners, the, the law firms that we do business with, the, the public have the, those protocols posted for them so that everybody knows you know, what needs to be done to keep people safe in our buildings when they're here for court. Carl? I think Barb stated it really well. I'd only add one, one dimension or one other thing to think about in this area. I would get mail during the height of the COVID precautions in say spring 2020, or I would watch the mail that went to our presiding judge. And it ranged from everything from, you're gonna kill us all by keeping the courthouse doors open and making me come there, to you're all cowards and this is America and we, you have a constitutional obligation to keep those doors open. And somewhere in the middle of this, somewhere in the center, we have to strike that balance between not, not only fulfilling our constitutional obligation, but to use the old Ernie Friesen principle, 
we have to give the public the confidence that we're fulfilling that obligation. They can rely on us and trust on us to not kill them and to maintain that access, but at the same time, be cautious, be respectful of their safety, ensure their safety as much as we practically can, everything. And that means deciding practically every day between masks, whether we ask questions at the front doors, how closely we inquire of our employees. And it's hard. That practical stuff is really hard in striking that balance. For example, we're not just talking, remember, for most of us about asking an employee, okay, what's your vaccination status? It's going to be, who do you live with? What's the vaccination status or, or the COVID status or the, the COVID test results for, those, for your family members or household members? I mean, it's unusually invasive for us. And so it, it's, a, it's a tough balance to strike. But yeah, I, I think that's, that's the obligation we have to fulfill. I think if, if you would, if, if I could interject, I think the one thing that we have to remember is, is the word practical. I mean, I think we're doing everything that we can on a day-to-day -day basis. And the reality is you can, you can be fully vaccinated and you could still contract COVID. And while you may not even show any symptoms, you still can contract COVID. So, you know, we're doing, I, I'm, I'm, I can speak specifically to to my court, I know that we are doing everything that we can on a daily basis to thwart any outbreaks or, you know, we've been very fortunate. Uh, we have not had any problems. And, you know, it, it, I have to believe that no one is intentionally going to come in to the court knowingly being in, infected. And, you know, where do you draw that, draw that line of this is too much or, or it's not? So I think the practicality of it and hoping that cooler cooler minds will prevail in the end when you're discussing, you know, what's what's out there, what's not out there, what's right, what's wrong. But I, I think as long as we are doing our due diligence every day and reassessing every day what we're looking at, I, I don't know that there's much more that we can do. You know, I think you make a good point, Courtney. The only the only thing I'd add is what makes all those practical determinations even more difficult is. I mean, as we all know, there's very little public consensus on a lot of this. And so we're trying to strike that balance and come to those practical determinations in an environment of great debate and, and complete social fracture and lack of consensus on what's reasonable. And so I, I, maybe it's helpful for those of us who are kind of on the front lines de deciding, okay, what questions do we ask? Do we mask at the front doors? Do we, do we quiz people on their, their household members? Those sorts of things. Maybe it's helpful to keep in mind that no matter what best judgment we make, somebody's gonna be unhappy. What is the extent of a court's responsibility to respect the privacy of employees and the public? privacy regarding COVID and one's personal choices, privacy regarding why someone wishes to enter a public building. Barbara, do you think it's a legitimate option to ask a member of the public what their business is in the courthouse if they look homeless or look like a protester? Well, to start from the back end of your questions, you know, I, I would say, you know, safety, as I think Carl said, you know, has multiple meanings and, you know, a personal safety in terms of threat from violence is one aspect of it. And, you know, the, the protests that we've seen and violent acts around our courthouses have definitely had people on edge. Um, we haven't gone to or had to take steps or 
been willing to take steps to prevent people from having access to the courthouse or authorizing security to ask them questions about the reasons for their business there. So we haven't gone there, but it's been a very real concern among our staff, among our, our judges about their personal safety, that we've a lot more of the conversation certainly this year has been about vaccination status and, and personal health. And we've definitely asked a lot more questions and had more conversations with employees about personal health information than we've ever had before. It's It's been, you know, sort of a new, new territory for us to delve into. And it's frankly been uncomfortable for both the employees and for those of us that are supervising them. Our policy has evolved. Originally, um, our chief justice established a policy which required masks for all judges and employees, but authorized um, the removal of masks and the exemption from wearing the mask if you had been vaccinated. So it was voluntary to reveal your vaccination status. You didn't have to show your proof of vaccination if you wanted to continue wearing your mask, but if you wanted to be able to work in the workplace without your mask on, you needed to show that. And so that was a, a, a first phase that we needed to work through. We, there was a lot of resistance to sharing their vaccination status and a lot of conversations individually among employees about who was choosing what and why, which led to some conflict in, in the workplace that was not all that great. Then eventually we've moved to a policy that requires vaccination for all of our judges and staff and had some limited um, exemptions from that for medical or religious reasons. And we had a central HR department that processed all of those and a certain number of people received those exemptions. Now they're in a protected status, but because of the policy that we had earlier in the year and all of those conversations that allowed people to remove their masks, it's become fairly common knowledge in a lot of areas about which employees those are, which puts those employees and their coworkers in an uncomfortable situation. And so that's you know, something that we're working through right now. Um, right now, employees who have that exemption are testing twice for COVID using rapid tests, and that's been working fairly well. None of those employees have tested positive um, during those tests, and so we feel good that they're safe in the workplace. But I do have concerns about what we do as this evolves into the future. Right now, everyone's required to wear masks in our workplace, but what do we do when the mask requirement is not universal anymore and we have certain employees who have exemptions? Are we going to require those employees to wear masks? That, that's the next phase, I think, of conversations around this. So I, I think there's going to be um, continuous debate about this and it's going to continue to evolve. Courtney? If they are not vaccinated, uh, fully vaccinated, that is, they have to be tested every seven days. Um, and they have to report that test and the test results. Uh, it, it was The policy is difficult. I struggle with uh, how do you gauge one's sincere religious belief? Or um, is it sincere enough? Is it not? Um, how do you, is there a list somewhere that says these medical conditions would qualify you for the exemption? So I was very relieved uh, to learn that the county's uh, personnel department would be would be making the, those exemptions. So I, I was very happy about that because I was not prepared to, to have to be the one that makes those decisions. It's, you know, it's quite simple. Agree with it or not agree with it is, is it relevant at this point. If you are a St. Louis County employee, you are required to be masked all the time in public areas. Um, unless you are in an enclosed office by yourself, the mask is to be on and you have to be 
vaccinated. And if you're not willing to be vaccinated or test every seven days, then there are possible negative consequences that um, up to and including termination. So, uh, but as far as the public, when they want to come in, we don't ask any questions. If you want to come into our circuit court courthouse, uh, your temperature is checked. But if you want to go into any of the uh, St. Louis County satellite locations where my courts are located, satellite courts are located, you do not have a temperature check. Um, but you are required to have a mask on at all county owned and operated buildings, whether you are an employee or um, a member of the public. So security does not inquire of the public's vaccination status, but they will turn them away if they are unwilling to wear a mask and they are offered virtual options at that point for court. Carl, do you think it's a legitimate option to ask a member of the public who they're living with or who they've been in recently close contact with? I think we can certainly have a, a really reasonable debate as to whether a, a legitimate thing to do to the public who come to the building. It, you know, in the past, it, we would never dream of asking anybody, why are you here when they came through the doors? Um, or, or if they make a records request, we don't, we, we'd never ask them, why do you want this? And when the COVID precautions were in place, suddenly all those boundaries, all those areas that we didn't challenge, um, we asked them at the front doors. But, but even, even posing the questions, you know, the presiding judge in security ultimately concluded for a relatively short time that, okay, we'll ask coming through the front doors. Even that though was a, a topic of continuing debate because even if we ask the question, we have no idea if the answer is, is honest. Mm -hmm. um, and so even if we do pose those questions, does that add a, a level of security or safety? I don't know. Um, every once in a while, we'll still get someone in a courtroom who starts to cough and they failed to disclose, despite the signs and the warnings on front doors that say alert. Uh, <laughs> you, you should ask for a remote court appearance if, if you're exhibiting symptoms or living with someone in quarantine or you're under a quarantine order. Every once in a while, we will still get someone who starts coughing in a courtroom and then discloses a COVID exposure. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, talk, we talked previously a lot about practical considerations. And I think honesty at those screening questions is one of those practical considerations. Mm -hmm. Well, enforceability becomes a question too. I mean, if, sure. if someone's deemed that they are you know, even if we could, you know, do a rapid COVID test on somebody that's coughing in our courtroom just to make sure, the, the enforceability of, of such mandates are are very difficult. And, and I don't think that that's all the, all the way been challenged yet. So it'll be interesting to see see what comes about that. So again, I, I think at, at the end of the day, it's just, are we doing it? Are we making our best effort? So just to give you an idea of how difficult this area is, at the height of the COVID precautions, we did uh, temperature testing for employees in the staff entries. You know, you'd come in, you'd, you'd treat yourself with the, the temp gun, you'd write down your name on a clipboard and you'd walk in, assuming you were under 99. Well, then a few employees objected to that because they thought, well, you know, I really shouldn't have to disclose my temperature to my coworkers. And, and we had a great deal of sympathy for that. So we thought, okay, fill out a slip instead and then drop it in a drop box. And then, you know, the presiding judge or I will go through it, we'll make sure that everybody complied, and then we'll shred them. Well, the problem with that was some employees objected because the lack of a clipboard 
gave them no confidence that all their coworkers had complied. Mm -hmm. And so one of the coworkers could have completely blown it off and walked past the temperature testing station and had 102 temperature and their coworkers had, had no confidence that they, they were compliant or respectful of, of possible communicable diseases. And so we thought, okay, we'll go back to the clipboard, but all you do is write your name to confirm that you shot the temperature and you don't put your temperature down. I mean, that, that's the sort of, even in a relatively benign screening like that, th those are the concerns and, and the practical considerations that we have to work through. So it, it's a difficult area. What should be the consequences if a court preemptively bars some folks from entrance or becomes too intrusive in obtaining personal information? Courtney? For municipal courts specifically, you know, speaking about Missouri, we're located in, in, within the communities that we serve. So we are commonly located in um, buildings owned by the city. So if your mayor or board of aldermen or council says shut it down, you know, I, many of us had conversations going, wait, we, we can't just shut it down. That's not, that's not how this works. So I, it, it's been very interesting. So I, you know, I, I'm very tentatively looking forward to see how, seeing how it all shakes out. Oh, you're right. I mean, it's funny you should mention that because here in Sioux Falls, the courthouse is the courthouse. It's exclusively the courthouse. At another one of our courts, about half an hour down the road, it's a shared county building. And because of that, of the presiding judge's point about we compel people to be here, we've got to exercise a higher level of caution than many other agencies might. We decided, okay, there, there's going to be a mask requirement. There's going to be a temperature requirement. There are going to be entry restrictions on the courthouse side of this complex. But, you know, given that you can pay your property taxes by mail, um, we're not, and it's not really our jurisdiction, we're not going to exercise that court authority on the county side of that complex. So the practical result was if you walked through the front doors and turned right, you had all those cautionary measures and restrictions apply. If you turned left to renew your license plate tabs, well, then you didn't have any of them. And so, yes. yeah, we, we've got we've got a really challenging environment to figure out. Barbara. Well, I think we're just figuring out so many new things that, you know, it, it's going to continue to evolve and we'll we'll reach better decisions and, you know, with more experience in it. I think that a lot of our challenges have been around access as we've switched to conducting so many things remotely or offering the alternative of conducting, you know, of attending different matters remotely, had to figure out, you know, how to handle the observers, people who show up and, and are supporters of a victim or supporters of a defendant, um, people who, the media, you know, who wants to observe a particular matter if it's being held online, we we had to figure out um, ways to manage, you know, observation, physical observation rooms in our courthouses when the entire matter was being handled remotely. We had to figure out how to um, manage the behavior of um, observers who are in a fully remote hearing. For example, we had. Uh, around our landlord tenant dockets, we switched to holding those fully remotely, but given all of the advocates for tenants and um, strong feelings about preventing evictions, we had a lot of tenant advocates um, calling into those remote hearings and employing some tactics that we hadn't seen before and weren't really prepared for how to deal with them. For example, we had 
observers dialing into those remote hearings and playing a foghorn, you know, to disrupt the hearing or saying death to landlords, you know, interrupting and speaking, uh, using avatars like pitchforks for their symbol to appear as the participant or using even images of attorneys that, you know, were clearly not the, the caller who was on the line. So things like that you know, we, we really had to balance, well, people have a right to observe, but, you know, how do we manage behavior in a remote environment? And should we be expelling people from those hearings when they're disruptive? How disruptive is too disruptive? We've, you know, we've had a lot of experience with that in the physical environment of courtrooms and when we call security and what we do if, if somebody is acting disrespectfully or, or disruptively in a courtroom, but in a remote hearing, that's, that's a brand new environment for us and judges and court staff and, and lawyers are all sort of working through it on the fly, trying to figure out mm. you know, what is too intrusive, what is too disruptive. So I, I think this is just a new world that is going to continue to evolve. And as we gain more experience in it, we'll, we'll have a better idea of where to draw that line. I think it'll be interesting when they when they look at, you know, we talk about compelling people to come to our courthouses, but we have now forced them to attend virtually. I mean, as, as part of the court, are we, is it our responsibility to protect their right to an in-person appearance? And if they're not doing that, then what are our options at that point? So th there are just so many lessons um, that we're going to be either hard learned or um, we'll figure out. But I guess our, our appellate courts will fill us in on that at some, at some juncture. Is the need for safety and the need to respect privacy on a collision course? Carl? You know, in thinking through some of those issues as we were preparing for this session, um, I, I read that question and thought to myself, I, I don't know that it's on a collision course. I think safety's already won. Safety's already pushed out those privacy boundaries far beyond where we would have ever expected them to be whether it's medical status or family status or who do you who lives in your household or you know have you gotten your test results yet kind of thing i mean we would have never dreamed that we we'd be able to ask an employee that sort of question two and a half years ago and so in my mind when i consider that whether whether those two interests are in a collision course i i think safety has already won now whether that's appropriate i don't know I mean, you've got, in, in my mind, privacy and discretion and, and respect of an employee's or a members of the public's personal life is an important thing. On the other hand, trying to ensure that safety is also such an important thing. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure how I feel yet about the fact that I think the concern for safety has pretty much erased the privacy boundaries. Courtney? Yes. I, I think I think we are, and and I say that because I agree with everything everything that Carl said. But I think at some point, once this pandemic or variant, whatever number variant we're on, all of these things get under control, whatever that means anymore. But yes, because I, I think at some point it's going to start bleeding over into how we interview. What's what's on the table when we interview people to come work for the court? What can we ask the, uh, of them at that point? And I, I think at some point, somebody's going to say, okay, this is enough. And, and it's going to be challenged. But I, I, I yes, I think we are definitely headed for some sort of cataclysmic event. Barbara? 
Well, I, I would think, you know, in, in the world, in the community, we're definitely on that collision course. I think that's the conversation that we're hearing, you know, everywhere in our, in our lives. But I, I would say in the courts, you know, the way I'm seeing it is still sort of that image that Carl referred to, the, the scales of justice. And I, I see it as a balance. I think we have to, both are important considerations and we just have to look at each issue as it comes up and, and balance the two, but both are important. Are you aware of any emerging best practices on how courts have navigated these issues? Barbara? Um, well, I would say, you know, coming up with innovative practices to, to try to skirt the issues, basically. You know, we've, mm -hmm. we've moved to um, remote jury selection, for example. And what that allowed us to do is avoid having to talk to jurors about their vaccination status, but continue to be able to get trials out um, and, and uh, at the same time, give everybody some confidence in their safety, you know, and, and mm -hmm. uh, remove that concern of being in a room with a lot of other strangers where you're compelled to be there and you don't have any information about what their circumstances are, who they live with, their vaccination status and so forth. So remote jury selection is, is something that there has been a lot of debate and, you know, uh, considerations um, that have gone into the planning for that because of course, technical difficulties are a real issue. Um, it takes longer, we've discovered. It adds to the, you know, a, almost a full day to any trial that we have. It, it's very resource intensive in terms of our staff. It takes a lot of management of um, the jurors and the, the entire process. But I think you know, it's an important way for us to continue to do business and um, respect the, both the safety and the privacy of our citizens who are you know, performing their civic duties. So um, that's one, one practice. But again, um, uh, we've had a lot of objections from attorneys you know, to that practice. And um, so you know, appellate courts will determine whether that is a valid objection or not. And what advice do you have for the rest of us? Courtney? Buckle up and enjoy the ride at this point. I mean, uh, stay informed as best you can and uh, try to stay above the political fray. I mean, that's that's tough to do, uh, especially for uh, municipal courts um, and municipal divisions in Missouri. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's, it's a very polarized and um, a hotly debated topic and just keep grinding, doing the best that we can, do what we do. Carl? I feel like I'm, I'm echoing Courtney again, being Joe cheerleader, but it, this is a fascinating time to be in this field. You know, I always, when I do school tours and that sort of thing, I always say, I love my job and it's always interesting and it's never the same day to day. This is a fascinating, challenging time to be, to be in the courts. And, and I'm sort of proud to be here and I feel lucky to be here, but, but it's not because it's easy. Um, it, it, it's, it's because it's, it's challenging and, and interesting and different every day. And, and we've got some, uh, we'll, we'll have to watch how a lot of these profound debates play out, but we've got a great opportunity here too. Barbara? I would agree with Carl, interesting and, and challenging, but I would go further and say it's, it's hard. You know, I, I would encourage other court administrators to, you know, take a deep breath, self-care. Like, I, 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 don't, I don't know how long this road is going to be, and we're not at the end of it yet. So um, I just think we all just need to recognize that this is, this is a journey, and we don't know how long it's going to be till we get there. So we need to pace ourselves and just, you know, keep breathing. I want to thank Barbara Marcille, Courtney Whiteside, and Carl Tanis for offering their insights regarding safety, 
privacy, and personal choice in the courts. This ethical issue seems far from settled, and I think we'll be talking about this again in the future. My thanks also to you court professionals tuning in to today's conversation. In the face of these risks, you continue to take care of the courts, take care of the public, and take care of the administration of justice. Thank you. Join us this coming spring for another conversation on the ethical issues facing our courts. This has been a Question of Ethics video conversation. I'm Pete Kiefer, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for joining us today. A Question of Ethics video conversation is a regular segment on ethics, courts, and court administration. Today's episode will be available on our website, in the Court Manager Journal, on the Court Leader website, on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, LinkedIn, and on Twitter. Become part of the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, email us. Our address is ethics at nakamnet.org. Did you hear an interesting comment by one of the panelists that you'd like to listen to again, but you don't want to search the entire episode to find it? The additional resources section on the web page contains a question time marker sheet. Just find the discussion question on the sheet, and next to it was the time that question was asked. You can then quickly fast forward to that time on the episode and listen to the panel's comments. Remember, if you don't have time to watch an episode, you can always listen to the audio version. Listen in your car or on the bus on your way to or from work. You never have to miss an episode. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests, the Court Leader website, and the National Association for Court Management, thank you, and have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this episode are solely those of the host and the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.